0: Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zwieback. Thanks for joining me.
1: Why, when, where, what
0: I be? Today, I get to sit down with the leadership of the Agahozo Shalom Youth Village in Rwanda, which was created after the genocide by Anne Heyman, a blessed memory, and modeled on youth villages that were built in Israel after the Holocaust. Fabrice Milzenze, Jean-Claude Nikulikim Fora, and Shiri Sandler spend time with me talking about their work, the impact it's had on them and on their families and on their community. Stay tuned and be inspired. Yeah. What did you start? What did you start with? Started with Kinyarwanda, my mother tongue. And how? I know there's lots of languages in Rwanda. Is that the the official language other than French? You know, before French.
1: We have four official languages. So we have uh, Kinyarwanda, Kiswahili, French, and English. Right.
0: Mm. Um, and then there are like l- more local languages or more tribal languages. Nope. No.
1: That's the beauty of Rwanda. We do not have a lot of local uh, languages. Oh, really? And the good thing also about uh, having Swahili, it's a language that cuts across uh, the eastern and southern part of uh, Africa.
0: Yeah. I, the only place I've been in Africa is Tanzania. And I was there on a safari a few years ago, and, and there were dozens and dozens of languages, which I know can you know make it harder to form a sense of community. So thank you so much for making time with me on this trip of yours. Um, I had the chance to spend some time on your website, and I've also gotten a chance to talk to uh, some of the members of the congregation that helped connect us to you, including uh, Steve and Jody Fishman and Glenn and Andrea Sonnenberg, and I'm just blown away by your work. Uh, For folks who are listening who might not know about the Village I'd love to hear about its origin and tell us a little bit of the story of how it came to be. And any one of you can start whether, uh, I think Shiri's going to start. So Shiri, tell us a little bit about the, the origin of the village and 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 how it all came together.
2: Sure. So the idea of a youth village um, comes from a place called Yemin Ord, which is in Israel, which was founded after the Holocaust to raise orphans of the Holocaust, and the belief of a youth village is that every child deserves a safe family and a loving home. And when the family isn't intact or the society isn't intact because of societal trauma, a youth village can step in and help the child experience love, safety, and opportunity. It can be as close as an institution can get to being a family. Our youth village, the Agahoso Shalom Youth Village, was the brainchild of a woman named Ann Heyman. and was a South African-American Jew who had heard a Rwandan speak in 2006 and asked him what the biggest problem facing Rwanda was. And he said the orphan crisis. And she said, there is a systemic solution to that. And that's the youth village model. And she decided to build that youth village. Um, she knew that there had been success with the youth village in Israel, Um, And she believed that this Israeli idea could be adapted using Rwandan ideas to fit the Rwandan context. And that's where we came from and spent just two years um, building the village before the first class of kids were welcomed in. Uh, Those kids were survivors of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. And today, we have seen more than 1,600 kids come through our village. Today, our kids are no longer survivors of the genocide because the genocide was almost 30 years ago. But genocide has long legacies. and uh, So now
0: it's second generation.
2: Exactly. And kids who face poverty, loss of parents, abuse, deal with drug addiction, are facing prostitution etc And JC wasn't with the village at the very beginning, but he was there in the early years and can really speak to the way that Anne found commonality between these original Jewish ideas and Rwandan culture to build our village core and I values
0: and died tragically in a in an accident um, but she had founded the village in 2005 mm-hmm. and so you said it took a couple of years or is, or is 2005 when it when it opened
2: so 2008 was when we welcomed the first class got
0: it okay so jc maybe you can pick up and share a little bit about how you first got involved and maybe a little bit of your story in and, and the connection to the village
1: sure um thank you so much for having me um my connection, I'll start with my um, background a little bit. I was born of um, <clears throat> parents who um, had to flee their country uh, when they were teenagers. I believe that um, if the village had existed before, my parents would have been the first beneficiaries of the village. They were all orphans and they had to run away and uh, into a foreign country. I grew up a refugee without um, the rights of having a, owning a passport. And so uh fast forward much later when um I heard about the village uh, I was first a visitor uh I visited the village when uh, it had uh, been in operation for 2 years and So I how was, how old were you at this time when you when you first came? Okay I I was already old I was I was working and I was actually married and uh and uh, that was uh 2010 when I um Went to visit the village um, uh, on the invitation of Anne Heyman, the founder, who invited my wife to uh, come and visit. And so I was blown away by this, uh, I would say, village. In my mind, we did not understand the concept of a youth village. We were like, okay, this must be an orphanage. And or a boarding school, but uh, it was not none of the above. It was a place, a home for kids who have lost uh, family members, and it was a place where we think our kids are allowed to reclaim their adolescence. And it's a place that um, we believe that uh, our kids' parents would have wanted for their own kids had they been alive. Mm. And so we uh, pick in the. So is,
0: is every kid in the village? has lost one parent or both parents?
1: When we started, every kid had lost, um, 70% of our kids had lost both parents. And uh, about 20% of our kids had lost um, uh, a father. And uh, 10% of our kids had lost a mother. But all kids were often, by, according to the UNICEF uh, uh, definition of orphanhood. And all because of the genocide. All because of the genocide. And today we are talking about the genocide and the consequences of uh, the genocide. So we sort of have second-generation orphans and uh, and kids who have been transmitted the trauma from their parents who have been heavily traumatized and uh, uh, so going through PTSD, are going through a lot of mental health struggle. And so this village was really meant to build... The lives of our, of our kids under the whole peel of uh, tikkun Halev and so helping our kids to be. So just say something about
0: tikkun Halev in, in case someone's joining and 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 doesn't know the background of that. So you know, helping to repair and heal yes. the heart, the spirit, everything.
1: Absolutely. So yes, the village through tikkun Halev is meant to uh, provide a safe and loving environment. And opportunities for kids to heal, to repair, to heal their hearts, to heal, heal their soul, uh, to reclaim their adolescence. Their young uh, men and women who uh, are completely, I would say, uh, desperate for uh, and uh, and uh, and we like to say that we want to take them from a space where they are broken to a place to a sp- place where they are whole. Mm. And so that's the whole. Uh, journey of transformation uh, while at the village and so they go through healing and they go through realizing that they are also capable of helping others and so we also are which
0: of course is a huge piece of healing is knowing that you have a purpose and you absolutely. have value and you can you Abs- can help others yeah
1: absolutely and it's uh, and that goes through tikkun olam and so our kids do a lot of community service. But I like to say that, um, uh, and I could be wrong, but I really do believe that uh, this village would not have been founded anywhere else because some of those key principles of uh, Tikkun Halev and Tikkun Alam are also found in some uh, ancient traditions in Rwanda, uh, where uh, today, I mean, uh, uh, Rwanda has gone through a, a, a genocide 28 years ago. And part of uh, Rwanda's rebirth has been to focus on our ancient traditions, traditions of rebuilding a community through uh, programs like Ubudehe, taking care of the poorest of the poorest. That's what that Um, that say. That word again. What does it mean? Ubudehe, Ubudehe. So it means you uplift. A, a member of the community because she or he cannot take care of themselves. And it's our own moral responsibility to uplift people.
0: And that's a core part of Rwandan culture.
1: Absolutely. Like today, for instance, uh, in Rwanda, we have, um, as an example, we have a universal uh, health care. And uh, for those who can't afford it, the government will pay for them. But for those who the government cannot reach, we, as a people, uh, as individuals, we meet as a community and we make sure we pay for anybody who does not have health care. And that's, uh, a, I would say, it's a known pact and it's, a, it's something that is innate in us. Every month we do community service in our communities. And those are traditions that have been there for like um, six, seven hundred years in our communities and and how we grew and i think that's how embracing agahozo shalom and i love how the founder uh, wanted to have a rwanda name meaning drying tears agahozo coming from the verb guhoza and guhoza mean drying tears and shalom agu agahozo agahozo yeah uh, agahozo means uh, the acts of drying tears and the verb is guhoza to dry tears and then you have shalom uh it's a space so it's a place of peace and uh, and uh peace not only uh, physical and uh, but also peace of mind peace of the soul and it's beautiful altogether it's so beautiful
0: I'm sure one of the things that listeners are wondering right now because I am as well is you know you've got this Rwandan concept of helping those who need help and supporting those who need support and then but we know that there was this genocide where members of the same country obviously different you know different ethnic groups ended up slaughtering each other so is that something that as part of the work of the youth village you reflect on how did this happen how could this happen and how do we make sure that nothing like this happens again how how do you teach that how do you deal with that reality
1: i just want to say the reason why uh, there was a genocide is because great ancient traditions were broken And I think bringing back those traditions is also one way of uh, rebuilding our communities. So even though those
0: values are innate, if you don't nurture them and promote them and protect
1: them, they can be forgotten or violated. Absolutely. And I think uh, the village serves this purpose of uh, teaching um, uh, what, there is another concept I think uh, Starting in South Africa, when you call Ubuntu, and uh, it's also the same word in Kinyarwanda, Ubunu, meaning humanity. Ubuntu? Ubuntu in South Africa. In Rwanda, we call it Ubunu. And, ubunu. And it's humanity. Your humanity, my humanity. You know, uh, today in Rwanda, we are more than just a Tutsi or a Hutu. We are Rwandans. And what does it mean to be a Rwandan? It's a person of high level of dignity. Agachiro, that's who we are. And we are bigger than what separates us. We embrace diversity. And uh, all of these ancient traditions do help us to bring us together. And of course, we understand that healing we take a long uh, a long time, and so the village serves uh, that purpose of uh, teaching our kids through art, to performing art, through through uh, theater, to uh, music, to dancing, to all sort of activities, to help young people find themselves and heal, and uh, and and progress and prosper. It's beautiful. It becomes an opportunity to think about.
0: You know, it's a cautionary story, a very dramatic and painful cautionary story. But what happens when some of these traditions that have bound us together and kept us whole are forgotten or ignored? And uh, I think there's so many historical parallels that that we can think about. Um, Shiri, you wanted to say something. Okay. And then I want to I hear a little bit about Fabrice's story and, and how he got involved. But please, go ahead.
2: I want to add something to what JC is saying, um, because what happened to those traditions was that they were overwritten by colonialism, right? Is that colonizers came in and destroyed those existing societies, destroyed those ways of life, those homegrown solutions, those ancient traditions. And I think that in itself both has a great many parallels, but also is an important lesson um, of respect for existing culture. Right. And just because you don't see the culture or don't understand the culture doesn't mean it isn't there. And I think it's really powerful as an outsider, as a Westerner, to see that so much of Rwanda's healing is based in returning to this deep, unifying Rwandan-ness. And I think that's, you know, when you look as an outsider at Rwanda and at how it's managed to move forward since the genocide, how it dealt with these issues of perpetrator and victim living next door to each other, when it dealt with developing a society from sort of the ruins of humanity, it looked back and said, what do we have in common? How can we focus on unity? How can we focus on who we are as a way to find strength? And when you see that in Rwanda today, when you see that in the village, you see these commonalities among vulnerable kids, among traumatized kids, and where they're finding their strength is inside of them and inside of sort of their national identity. I think that's really powerful and a really vital lesson for those of us dealing with division in other communities and in our own communities.
0: That's so important and so powerful. And I'm just wondering, before we go to Fabrice, what is something that, you know, in your experience Shiri in your work with the village, like what's something that's really either surprised you um, about the work or about what it, the impact it's had on you, not just the, the families and the children you serve, but, but something that changed you, I guess.
2: It's a great question. So I, I come from a Holocaust family. Um, I was, my grandparents helped raise us. And I was the kid who wanted to hear the stories. You know, there's always the kids who want to be near the adults, want to understand. And that was me. Um, And in college, I was studying the Holocaust. I was out here in Los Angeles working for the Shoah Foundation. And my grandmother called me and she said, I don't want you to do this. She said, my life had to be sad. Your mother's life had to be sad, but yours doesn't. And I said, grandma, I, I have to do this. I don't I don't have a choice. it's it's inside me and she said, well, if you're going to do this, then you don't do it for just the Jews. you do it for everyone And that was the message I took forward and that's one of the ways I found Agahoza Shalom. So the first time I was in the village, um, a colleague was driving me to the village. I had been in my job four weeks I had you know didn't know anything right I was upside down. He was my age almost exactly and as we were driving out to the village, he starts telling me about, his experience during the genocide. And all I could think was, I know these words. I know this tone. I know this feeling he's compelled by. I'd been around it my whole life. It was the same experience of listening to a Holocaust survivor just suddenly have their story pour out, except he was my age. I was 11 when this happened. We were children, and this is what he was going through. And that was really disruptive for me, that really shook me deeply, and especially after a a career in the Holocaust space. Um, But it also was this sense of commonality that I feel like the Jewish community and the Rwandan community, that we have this kinship. I think of us as sort of elder brothers in trauma, that we have this responsibility to be there and, and help as best we can. People get through this trauma so that was the first one, but the second one was really different. Um, it was my first night in the village and I was having dinner with the kids and I didn't really understand at the time why people should visit the village. I felt like it was invasive for the kids. I felt like, you know, you you don't, you shouldn't go and, and gawk and look at these kids who are in the process of healing. Um, and then I was, I was sitting at dinner and, I took my phone out. They wanted to see something. I took my phone out, and on the back of my phone case was a picture of my then 16-month-old daughter. And one of the girls said to me, she said, you, that is your baby. I said, that's my baby. She said, you have a baby and you came to see us? That I had stepped away from my family and my life and left my baby behind, that they were worth that, was shocking to her. And that was a really transformational moment for me of what it means to understand your value through someone else's action, that it was worth coming to see them, to meet them, to see their life, to experience the village. Um, and that sort of changed the way I looked at my job and the way I think about having the honor to share these stories is, is about saying these kids want your recognition. right? They want right. to know that, that they've never met you, right. but they have value to you.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's being seen, it's bearing witness. There's um, an amazing story in the Talmud about whether or not it's allowed to go and watch a gladiator competition. This was you know, during the time of the Roman uh, occupation of the land of Israel, and some rabbis said that was a form of idolatry, because there were statues of Roman and Greek gods in the amphitheater. And others said it was just barbaric to watch these gladiators fight each other to the death. But there were other opinions that said, no, it's a mitzvah, it's an obligation to go and watch for two reasons. So one reason is if there was a Jew who was killed in a gladiator competition, you could bear witness and tell his wife that he was dead so that she could remarry. Because if no one witnessed his death, she wouldn't be able to take a new husband. So that's one reason. But then the other reason to go and witness the barbarity of the destruction is just to bear witness to the pain. And I I always think about that when I hear stories about people who want to come, not because they want to gawk, not because there's something about it that's you know um, a type of um, fetish or something like that, but instead because they want to bear witness and they want to hear those stories and see those tears and maybe offer a hug or just just say shamati you know i hear you i heard what you had to say so as you were telling that I, I i thought of that teaching in the talmud
2: i think that's so beautiful and so important and transcendent right beyond culture we fabrice and i were talking about this yesterday when he told his story i hope it's okay that i'm i'm saying this and it was very difficult for him and he was experiencing a lot of emotion. And afterward, you know, I said to you, I said, thank you for, for going through that for us, right. To tell your story. And I, it reminded me of my grandmother who used to give testimony and I'd go with her all the time when she gave testimony. And it's the, it's, it's the why of why do we listen, of why we tell these stories. And it's not just because, you know, the adage of, if you don't, history will repeat itself, right? Which of course it does anyway and we know. But also because these were people who who lived, these are experiences and pain that happened. And in being human, we have to see it. We have to understand that this is part of the human experience and to and to make it known, not to force someone to carry that that experience inside them alone, I think.
0: Mm. So Fabrice, tell us a little bit about your story and how you got connected with the Youth Village and you know, feel free to share any parts of that you want.
3: Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for having me today. Um, I like to say that I am one of the people who have tested and is still testing the fruits from the plants that Aga Shalom have planted. So I uh, was born in a in the village in a poor family, if I may say and it has been always very hard for us to, for my family to access some of the basic needs that all the family uh, deserve to access. So uh, things become a little bit harder when uh, I lost my dad at a very young age. And um, very quick, my parents did not go to school, so they could not have any, um, you know, any kind of, you know, good job that would help them to have income and take care of the family so the things they did um, every day was to farm you know uh, cultivate some uh, crops and then afterwards they sell them and be able to have the money to come back and take care for us but my father was uh, the one who was involved in those kind of um, activities so he was out say that he was the backbone of the family so um, when when he passed away things were really hard in the family that depression you know from my mom that um, to some extent blocked her from you know looking forward and see what else she can do to be able to come back and take care of us but that did not have impact on my mom only it also had impact to me to my siblings because you you lost your dad, you don't know like any other ways that things are going to work out. So um for me like going at school it wasn't uh, an option because I was born um after the genocide. So kids who were born before or during the genocide uh were taken care of by the government. So they like the education process was covered by, by the government. So it was a bit hard for me, who was born after the genocide, to go to school. So uh, the option was to drop out. I dropped out of school for some times, And I was young, but my thinking capacity was sort of, you know, was more like, you know, like a dark person. You know, when you pass all those through struggles, they kind of shape your mind to... Not joke around, if I may say, with life. So um, the idea was, what can I do to be able to feed myself for at least, if it could be like one night, or at least be able to bring something on the table for for the family. So that still was hard because um, I couldn't go to someone and say, uh, can you can you employ me for? any type of job and then give me money so nobody could do that because at my age it wasn't allowed so um i was i would say i was i was blessed to realize something in my community i i found out that like so many kids in my community at my age uh, were more like involved doing some um, sort of activities like uh, selling sugar canes and I got involved in that, so in the absence of having that opportunity to go at school, I looked for something else that I could do. So I joined the team of other kids, and we were selling sugar canes on the on, on street. So it was a very hard process, a very difficult thing to, to, to um, grasp in mind. So, um, and the struggle there, again- how, w- how
0: old were you at this point when you were I was, selling? I
3: was nine. 10-ish, so if I remember well. So um,
0: so you guys would, you'd get the sugarcane from the farmers or from some other sort of so middleman, f- and then you'd be on the street corner selling this? So there the are farmers
3: uh, around who uh, like have a big plot of land where they cultivated sugarcanes. And when they grow up, like so many people go and buy them from there and then go back to sell them. So uh, the struggle there was that it was... Like from where my home was to where uh the farm where we had to sell sugar to buy sugar canes were it was it was very long, but there was a spark of uh passion of doing that uh because of what I wanted to 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 solve what I want to deal with in my family so i didn't I didn't care about that much, so I had to go with kids and then we travel all that long distance and come back with the fresh sugar canes and then moving around looking for people to, to buy them. So um I was kinda excited for doing that for seeing that I can at least do something to help myself and help my family. Cause um at, at that young age it was it was it was kinda surprising and and my mom though didn't say that I I I think she was really, really proud of me. So um but still, I was like, when I was doing that, the question in mind was how how am I going to be able to go at school? Because I couldn't do much with just selling sugar canes, except, I, I mean, apart from, you know, helping myself get just a little piece of bread to eat at night. So um, the question in mind was like, how will I go back at school? So I couldn't see any way of of that happening and that made me sad uh for the rest of the time so um i had my sister who uh was married and she was also uh, tra- struggling to survive uh in Kigali so she moved there with the, with the husband she was running a restaurant i won't go deep into that so but she she wanted me to go to school so she she took me from the village uh, where I was living with my mom, and she was like you're not gonna you you're not gonna leave the mom um alone in the house, so th- we all had to move to live um with her in Kigali so um i thought I thought that life was gonna be uh amazing there because for my first time um leaving the village, going to Kigali, the capital city of 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 my country, I thought like things were gonna look really good, really good. But still, the things were a bit complicated because um, there were so many things going on. She has kids. Sometimes I had to, you know, to take care of kids when she was doing other uh, uh, activities, running restaurant stuff, all those stuff. And uh, but what I am more grateful for is that at least I was able to have a school where I could go to. But uh, again. There's being at school, but there is also being exposed to um resources, opportunities that you need uh to to excel. So if if you don't have enough books to read, if you don't have um uh, um I would say like good teachers who really know and understand what you want, you're just being yes, you're just being there at school, but again, um advancing and, 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 uh, be able to have something, you know, that helps you and helps your community when, when you look, but it's really hard. So, um, but I was grateful still. So, um, with all those challenges, I, I, I worked really hard. I worked really hard to the extent that I was able to excel academically than, uh, my colleagues who, had all the resources but still they I did I would say I did better than than some of those kids because I have that spark of passion uh looking back what my family was going through.
0: And was this this was before you got connected to the youth village? Yeah that us. was that was before. Right. That right. was before. So when did when did that happen? How old were you when you first made that connection to so
3: the When youth when when I had that connection I was I was seventeen. Oh okay. So
0: so this is this is the kind of the earlier chapter. Yeah. Um how did you how did you first get connected with the village So
3: how I got connected with the village? Uh my brother went there. So he he, he went there and when he graduated that was that was the time I was about to end my high school. So he he recommended me to people who were recruiting and they came to visit me um at school. So they learned about my, like we had like a whole conversation that ran for like an hour, two hours. They learned about my story and they realized that the purpose, their mission was aligned with um, the, the the story that I shared with them. So I was, I would say I was the kind of uh, key that they we're looking for. So um, I talked to them and then later on they, they 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 told me i they're glad to have me mm-hmm. in the the village
0: and your brother had gotten there um because same thing because you had lost your father and so there's there's a mechanism in rwanda to uh, you know and maybe this is for you jc how do you identify those kids because obviously there's only so many kids who you can help and the need is probably you know tremendous Um, How how many kids are you able to support at the Youth Village? And and how do you identify those kids so that
1: people like Fabrice can be helped? Thousands and thousands of kids really uh, do need our our support. Um, So uh, we have a long process uh, for recruiting our kids. And uh, uh, our founder really wanted for us to identify some of the most vulnerable youth. And, um, and so we write to... Uh, Rwanda is divided into 30 districts. So we write to all 30 district mayors and ask them to give us a list of their most vulnerable kids in the community. We usually ask for like 10, 6 girls and 4 boys. And uh, uh, within a two months, we receive a response f- uh, from each district. And uh, then we have a team that goes on the field. So our teams go... Um, we have about four teams that go uh, in the northern part east, west and and south and um, they go and meet about each group probably meets about uh, 100 uh, to 150 kids and in the process we end up recruiting 128 kids of which 80 are girls and 48 are boys girls have less opportunities than boys in the country so we try to uh, bring about a little bit over 60% of uh, young women into our program. now. Uh, and, what,
0: and what ages? These are teenagers? Basically, all of our up?
1: kids, yes. They come when they have completed uh, the ninth grade. And so we uh, they are usually between the ages of 15 and 17. Exceptionally, we might take a 14-year-old. And exceptionally, we might also take an 18-year-old. But all of them would have completed the ninth grade. And uh, we have what we call an enrichment year where we focus on the basics. We focus on English uh, and uh, numeracy and a lot of life skills. And uh, and then that's why we also focus a lot on Tikkun Halev on all the extracurricular activities that really help them to sort of uh, find themselves and heal. And uh, so um, we are lucky when we are able to find very resilient young uh, people, just like uh, Fabrice. Because when we recruit, while he was a great uh, student academically, we do understand that if you have not had three decent meals a day, if you have not... Okay, there's a slight pause in the conversation
0: because someone came to my office, knocked on the door, had my dog there with me, and he started barking like a maniac. So we had to stop recording and then start over. Not the whole thing, but just part of the conversation, you'll hear me pick up the question. Apologies, listener. One sec. Okay, sorry about that. We had a little interruption, technical difficulties, but we're back. And JC, you were talking about the kinds of students that you target for the program. And you mentioned Fabrice and the type of resilience that you saw in him. Maybe you can just pick up there when you think about how you bring those folks in. And then, of course, we wanna hear what you do to help make sure that they become their very best selves.
1: I believe that um, Agahozo Shalom is unique. Again, like we said, Agahozo means drying tears. And so our mission When we recruit, we want to be sure that we take that child, that if it weren't for the village, they would not be able to advance in life. And so we really try to find the most vulnerable kids, but at the same time that one kid that can be part of a program and can make a difference. We totally understand that if you haven't had three meals a day, If you have lost parents, if you are depressed, if you are sad, if nobody pays attention uh, uh, to your needs, then you might not be the strongest student in school. So we don't necessarily look at your academics as the indicator for uh, selecting you. But we like to ask our kids, we uh, we would ask Fabrice, if you had that one opportunity, what would you do with it? And we try to, to look for a, a little bit of a spark of resilience and uh, a little bit of, we try to plant a seed of hope and see how are you going to take on uh, that opportunity? And, uh, and uh, it goes through an interview process with uh, very empathetic mothers, mothers who have lost children during the genocide, mothers who really care about changing the world, changing the world of vulnerable kids. And, uh, and uh, it's a very, very, very difficult process because in Rwanda, I mean, because of the genocide, because we are a developing nation, I mean, you have hundreds of thousands of kids who might need the village, but we only end up selecting 128. And so, when we select our kids and they go through the process of healing, we also are assured that we are also creating pathways for them for after they leave the village. We know that they are going to be uh, agents of change uh, in their community and in the country. And we are extremely proud of the 1100 kids who have gone through the gates of Agahozo Shalom. I mean, 1600 kids and 1100 who have graduated already. And what they are doing? Because it's
0: a it's a hundred and eight in each in each grade
1: level. Yeah, tenth and so eleventh grade, grade. In total, we have five hundred kids. Okay, we have five hundred twelve kids, and uh, and they have four years in the program and they graduate. So we have graduated eleven hundred. Many of them are family men, family women. They have jobs. They have uh, they have a career. They have hope. They are active members of the society. And we're extremely proud to say we have nobody, none of our graduates, is into the justice system. That's something we, we really are proud of. And and uh, those values that they, they leave on a daily basis help them to uh, get to the next uh, level uh, in life.
0: Thank you so much. So... Uh Fabrice you're a graduate now and I we were talking earlier before we started recording that you're now attending university here in the United States so tell us a little bit about how the program changed you you know we got a little bit of an image of some of the challenges that you confronted as a as a young person and and I'm sure lots of listeners you know hear that story and they they think about you know, a young boy, essentially, you know, but working every day instead of being in school or playing sports or, you know, all the kinds of things that a child should be encouraged to do and allowed to do. And and you were trying to, you know, make a little extra income for, for the family and for yourself. You had these dreams and then eventually you, you make it uh, to the youth village. Tell us a little bit about how that shaped you, what it, what it did for you and helped you become the person that you are today.
3: That's a great, very great question. Um, I would like to start by saying that, uh, Agahoso appeared in time that I really needed it. So, and, uh, being a part of Agahoso, I was like, wow, this is what I wanted. But also like, like the person who have been through all those struggles, I was asking myself, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with all these opportunities? Because I had no idea. I had no idea. Being in an environment where I interacted with people from the U.S. for the first time, being in an environment where like almost like 90% of you know, all the people there are speaking English, but I had no idea of what, what was going on. So uh, part of me was kind of confused, and I had to find a way to navigate all through that. And what I loved more about Agahozo was that the system, the way it's built, is built to help you navigate and uh, discover what you are passionate about. And so there's something that kids from destitute families are depri- deprived of, if I may say. And that is the power to dream big and the ability to stay equally focused and, and determined because they are drowned in an um, ocean of endless problems such as depression, anxiety, um, low self-esteem, hunger, and, and so many men of those. And that was me before being a part of, of and have I not been able to be part of um, that community? Uh, to be honest, I don't know where. I would, I would not be here today speaking to you. But I met a group of people who really cared about me, who really cared about the struggles that I went through, and they helped me to chill and relax in a manner that, Fabrice, you have gone through this, but there is another life after the life that you went through. And the question was, how do you get to discover that life? That's what helped me. And I was exposed to different resources. And uh, like every Friday we had um, an opportunity to uh, showcase our talents to everyone there. And that's what I realized that I would be um, a public speaker. And I started working on that, something I would never realized before and also i was i was i asked myself this question now i have the exposure of all these opportunities so what am i going to do with with it even after i graduate from from this school because i don't want to graduate and go back where i was before coming here and um that's when i started dreaming about uh going to study um abroad and uh, it's so amazing how the structure of Agahozo is. It's pretty much different with other schools in Rwanda because uh, with other schools, it's really hard to make that interaction with, with the staff members. But something so unique with Agahozo, you're sitting in the dining hall, you're sitting with with executive director, you're sitting with your academic director. There's a huge, huge difference and it makes you feel different differently with the with, uh, with just being around your fellow students who haven't had enough experience to help you navigate through life but if I spend like 20 minutes sitting with 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 my executive director on the same table i have that room of asking him what am i going to do with this uh how how should i be successful uh, academically and how can i use um like all these opportunities to ensure that I help myself, but also help the community around. All those kind of advice uh, that are accessible from 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 the mentors that we we had there was really amazing. So, no,
0: sorry, I just wanted to ask a question about something that JC had mentioned for you, Fabrice. So, you talked about you know tikkun haLev, mm-hmm. finding ways to bring healing to a person's soul, and clearly. You know, when you talk about the impact that the program had on you, in terms of helping you to dream bigger and to imagine what might be possible. And, you know, now here you are in university in the United States and, and all of the different things that have happened in your life. But in terms of the healing, you know, from the trauma of losing a parent, the trauma of poverty, some of the depression and anxiety that you talked about, maybe you could say something about the Tikuna Lev experience for you. Was there sort of a breakthrough moment where you realize, oh my goodness! Like I, I've discovered something new about myself, and that's given me strength. Was it a you know a gradual kind of thing that you can only really notice in looking back? Was there a cathartic kind of moment where something um, changed in you? I'm just sort of interested how the how the healing part happened.
3: So um, there's a difference being in a community where you feel comfortable sharing with what you went through with others. And just being locked in somewhere where you feel like you are the only one who have gone through all those stuff. And have I not been able to attend Agahozo, I don't know if I would really be able to share my experience with, with, with others. And being part of Agahozo, I realized that um, I wasn't alone I had a group of kids who we, who had similar experience as mine and that to be honest was a good process for me to heal all the wounds that I had from uh, the experience that I had because um to some extent I because we had uh, discussions in in the families where we lived where Every member of the family would go ahead and share the experience, and sometimes I realized that there are kids who had terrible experience than mine. I was like, so if if this person went through this, and you can't compare it to what I went through, so there is there is a a, a room of hope that um, that we can we can help each other and and make ourselves you know better people and 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 the community is back. Uh, would be able to help them. So uh, Tikkun Alev has really helped me to um, kind of accept what I went through uh, in a manner that uh, there is a better life uh, ahead if I can be able to use uh, all the kinds of opportunities that I had. What's well, so, the
0: power of, you know, it, on your website, it talks about, you know, it takes a village Um, which obviously can feel very trite and sort of overused. But then you, like so many of those expressions that feel that way, you realize, well, yeah, it's true. (laughs) It's kind of how that thing works. Um, Shere, I'm wondering, you know, in your experience working with survivors and and in your own family experience, do you see analogs there where you've heard stories of people who say, no, there's no way I could have done this by myself, but because I was with other people and I saw, oh, look at, that person and how that person navigated. It. is that, Does that feel like a similar kind of narrative?
2: Completely. And I love that you asked that because, you know, when survivors came to America, they didn't talk about it, right? They weren't welcome to talk about it. No one wanted to hear, including other Jews. And it wasn't until um, two things. Uh, the miniseries about the Holocaust and then the big one and the one that was sort of deified in my family was Elie Wiesel that when Elie Wiesel began to speak, he created the desire to listen. And I think that desire to listen goes back to this, what you talked about earlier in the Talmud, this desire to witness and why you have to witness. But I don't think you talk about trauma unless you know it is safe to be heard and that someone will hear you and that someone will hold you and your pain in that moment. And I think you know when Fabrice talks about what it means to be in a community where it's safe to speak, where you know you're not alone. Um, I think there's, I think it's a very similar to what Holocaust survivors went through. I was thinking about we have um, many alumni now who work in the village, who are teachers, who work in our finance department, um, who are you know work in visitor services or on the farm or in security. And our visitor services officer was a member of our second class. um, And he was a genocide survivor. He and his identical twin brother. And he said recently that when he came to the village, he felt like his trauma was untouchable and unspeakable. And it wasn't until he got to the village that he realized it could be safe to speak it. And I think so often people who survive trauma don't know that they can survive the speaking of it or what it looks like to have to say it out loud. My grandmother always used to say she was afraid of crying when she gave testimony because if she started, she wasn't sure she would ever be able to stop, that she would lose control. And I think knowing you're in a place where people will help you put yourself back together after that moment is really important. And I think it's universal.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, obviously the... Uh, well, maybe not, obviously, for people who um, might not be as aware of where Jews live around the world, but um, there are parts of Africa that have significant Jewish populations, but Rwanda is not one of them. Um, how, and this is, I guess, for any one of you, um, how has the, the the youth village impacted the way, perhaps not every Rwandan, because, you know, you, you haven't had... You haven't been around long enough probably to affect you know every part of the country. But since so many of these people come from different parts of the country, different regions in the country, and then I imagine a lot of them end up going back home, and now they've had this experience, how has that changed the way Rwandans see Jews?
2: I think that's a great question. I'm going to ask JC to speak to the sort of political side of it and the interactions between Rwanda and Israel, but I want to tell you one anecdote about it. So when I was first in the village um, one of the kids said to me, she said, oh, you're Jewish. Do you know Takunolam? Olam? And the only thing I could think was, do you know Takunolam? Olam? I mean, Tekunhalev and Takunolam Olam are central to the village, to the, to the village, to the village's ethos, to life in the village. But there was something so funny as an American Jew, about a 15 year old Rwandan saying to you, oh, do you know Takunolam? Olam? I mean it was I love it, it too cuz it almost
0: personifies Tikun Olam right. like <laughs> Tikun Olam is someone you know you met at at shul one right, day right it's but, like Elijah right, right.
2: tikun olam opens the door right. and comes in um but I do think that the village one of the things it represents is sort of Israeli ingenuity and I think that's really important and there's been quite a bit of Israeli um investment in the village through technology through relationships um, and maybe, JC, you can speak about um, Ambassador Adam, just sort of the the political aspect of, of what it means for these two countries to have a relationship that's typified by the village.
1: Yeah, and um, actually, even before um, speaking about the political side, you're thinking, when you hear about Israel right now in the news, you talk about, you can hear about conflict and everything, and yet there is so many beautiful things about it, and Tikkun Olam being one of the one of those great uh, uh, principal beliefs, uh, and 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 so hearing that you have this one person that created a movement and built this youth village, and that is run by Rondans, and today we are partnering with um, Yeminod uh, Educational Institute that brings about. Uh, 20 to 30 uh, principals twice a year in Rwanda to visit and to uh, learn and exchange with us in Rwanda. Uh, It's just amazing. And uh, in addition to that, now you also have the ambassador of the State of Israel in Rwanda who who sees it as a model that really works. And uh, every time there is a community of uh, people from Israel uh, Agahoso Shalom be, becomes a place to, to visit. We have uh, partnered with other uh, organizations such, such as Branko Weiss and uh, so many other uh, organizations. When they come, they want to see, we want to see Agahoso Shalom, we want to learn from it, and we want to see how we can partner. Um, I think we, uh, a few years back, we we uh, met with uh, a number of uh, students who would come to Aga Shalom from the Hebrew University. And uh, I think it's it can it started with one person. And today we are talking about uh, uh, this being part of our community. Um, when we talk to, um, to leaders in education, they say, oh, you want a proper education system? Go to Agahosa Shalom. Uh, We have uh, recently uh, started a partnership with uh, the MasterCard Foundation, and we are working on a program called the Education Resilience Program. And uh, we are partnering with the Ministry of Education on a training program of about close to 450 teachers in about 150 schools. And to me, that's another story of Tikkun Olam. And so, um,
0: it's amazing how a concept that within, you know, I think within certainly Jewish life and American Jewish life, Israeli Jewish life, Tikkun Olam, like, yes, you know, Tikkun Olam, it's a concept that is widely known and spoken about, but the thought that there's people all over a country, you know, thousands of miles away, that is not a place where there are lots of Jewish people living or from them from there. To have you know, community like that resonate with these ideas, which are obviously, I mean, the name itself, Tikkun Olam. You know, it's the repair of the world. It's a very universal concept. It's not you know, Tikkun Yisrael or Tikkun Yehudim or something like that. You know, just the repair of uh, Israel or the Jewish people. It's very broad, but it's also interesting the degree to which some of this you have a conflation of this um, spiritual and religious path for Jews and also um, Midinat Yisrael, this uh, this sovereign nation that is a political entity um, and not uncomplicated in terms of its uh, connections. I know one of my friends is Yossi Abramovitz, who's helped to Build solar fields in Rwanda, and uh, and I don't know In the village. It, oh, there's there's a field in the village too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he's told me about his visits. So you know you have someone like that who's doing a lot of you know green work in throughout Africa, but Rwanda is one of the the biggest places that they've they've done that work. Um, and so and then there's all sorts of other Israeli technology that gets exported. You know, there's so many people who when they hear this story. Uh, particularly Jews, you know, are, are very moved by it, either because they themselves had a grandparent who was a survivor, parent who was a survivor, um, or even if they don't have someone, who's a, you know, they're not a direct descendant, they have some kind of connection to that. Uh, and then, you know, they hear about the youth village, and there's something very inspiring and beautiful and uplifting about that. People want to help. So I'd love to hear about different ways that, our listeners might be able to support your work. Obviously, we can go to your website and find ways to make donations and other kinds of things. Learn about the work. What are other ways that you talked about volunteers? What are other ways that people can can support what you're doing in the youth village?
2: So there's lots of ways to get involved with our work. Um, we think of our community around the world as the ASYV family, right? We have our family model in the village. But we have our family outside of the village as well. Um, and while supporting us financially is is sort of the obvious way, there are other very meaningful ways to get involved. Um, we have a service learning curriculum, and we welcome college and high school as well as um, young adult groups to the village to think about Rwandan homegrown solutions in the way that Ubedehi, um which JC described so beautifully, has helped Rwanda recover from the genocide and to learn from that example to think about what our own responsibility is in our communities. And it's a really powerful way to engage with questions around tikkun olam. Um, and so we encourage Jewish and non-Jewish groups, to come to the village and take part in that program. We do welcome visitors. You know, Rwanda is an incredible place to visit. It's beautiful. It's clean. It's incredibly safe. They have um, absolutely remarkable wildlife in the form of gorillas and golden monkeys. So if you go to Rwanda to see the gorillas, you know, come stop by Aga Shalom. Spend time on a Friday night. Have Shabbat with us and experience village time, our, talent sh- our weekly talent show. Um, we also take a small group, about six to eight young adults every year to serve as cousins in our family model, to live in the village for a year, to be cousins to a first-year family, and to do a job in the village. And then there's other ways to get involved, um, you know, in terms of supporting our work, whether financially or with your own uh, professional skills. And I encourage anybody who's interested to go to the website, to reach out to us, to reach out to me, because we are always learning... From others, And we're always looking to learn from others, especially as we embark on our next steps, whether it's, you know, teaching teachers across the country um, or thinking about how we can serve as a model to other communities who are looking to heal their children.
0: So what I'd like to close with is, first of all, just thank you for your time and and for sharing your work with us. And I hope that um, people who listen will be inspired to go to your website and learn more. About your work, and also you know, ways that they can be involved, either as a visitor or as a donor, or just being able to share the story. Uh, because obviously, if other people were inspired to do similar kinds of things, you know, there there could be ten thousand youth villages uh, in all parts of the world, including the United States, where people who have lost a parent or experienced trauma, or just need that safe space or need that community, could really benefit. There's uh, unfortunately no shortage uh, of uh, in terms of the need there. Uh, one of the things I like to ask folks on the podcast is, you know, what's something either that keeps you up at night about the work that you do, or uh, maybe more hopefully, you know, gets you up in the morning about the work that you do so maybe just thinking about some of the lives that you've been able to touch and if there's a a concrete story you know of someone that uh, that is to you sort of the place you go when things are challenging and there's you know some some logistical thing that's difficult or a budgetary thing that's difficult or a personnel thing that's difficult you know you go back to that place and you remind yourself of fabrice's story or someone else's story and say no, that's why i do this work so um JC, maybe we'll start with you. I'm sure you've got a thousand of those stories, but what's one that, that comes to mind when you think about what gets you up in the morning to, to
1: go do your work uh, at the at the village? Well, I <clears> saw <throat> what keeps me at night. Up at night is um, seeing a kid, uh, a, a young woman or man who uh, has lost hope, I think, and... Uh, um, he or she not being able to feel like they belong to a community, that um, their wounds will never heal. I think that's something that is very uh, traumatizing, even for us as uh, community members. So that's something that likes to uh, keep us uh, at night. Now, uh, on the other side, the story of hope when eventually, because in time, that kid will find his or her time to heal. And when you see that happening in front of your eyes, I think that's the best thing that... uh, It's probably the best reward that you could um, uh, ever have. I remember, and that's when in the, the early days when I first joined the village. COVID is not helpful. But I'm, I'm a very touchy person. Mm. When I see somebody, I touch them on the shoulder, I pat them on the shoulder, make sure that we have some eye contact. I remember touching a young lady on the shoulder. I hey, how are you? And she was looking down. And I uh, touched her again on the shoulder. look me in the eyes, how are you? And uh, she said, I'm OK. And she walked away, and I'm OK. And I walked away. And later on, when she graduated, uh, she wrote me a note saying that the day when you touched me on the shoulder, I really contemplated ending my life. And somebody showed me that I existed on that day. Mm. And next thing is that I joined a theater program. And next thing, that was my journey into healing and to becoming becoming the person that I have become. So, uh, you know, these are small stories that say, you know what, even on the worst possible days, there's still a sun ray that is out there for you. So it's on us as educators to help navigate that sun ray so it touches every single child of the village.
0: Mm. Thank you. That's beautiful, JC.
1: And it shows you how,
0: you know, just the, the smallest act at the right time can have the most tremendous impact Something that you might have forgotten, but to her it was uh, literally a life-saving moment. Mm-hmm. Fabrice, you want to share a thought? Well,
3: what keeps me uh, up is like I was—I was—I um, would say I was given chance to um, discover my passion, but um, somewhere around the world, I know there are kids. Um, who are in similar situation that I have been in. So um, I know it's my role to um, make sure that what's happening to someone um, does not keep happening for the entire of of, of that person's life. And basically, how do I do that is to ensure that I use the opportunities that I have be serious on either my academics and um, if i can be able to help myself make myself stable i know um, some other person will be stable through the work um, that is grounded on the values that i got from from um, agahoso so i know there's so many problems around the world that infringes the life of a person but um we getting a chance to be part of agahoso i would say we the like staff members there gave us the button to keep running and uh, be able to make some impact and dismantle all those challenges that um, keeps affecting people around the world. So it doesn't matter if I help million people, if I can be able to help one person, that person is going to help, you know, someone else. If I can be able to help single person either in my family or someone's family have something to eat for a night or might be helping her you know find something to do through my work of kindness i know that is the act of kindness that helps someone to change his or her life and that's how we get to change the world so that's what keeps me awake uh if i may say
0: thank you thanks fabrice shiri
2: so virtual rabbi thanks for having us today this was um I think a real treat for all of us, and I love having the chance to hear from these guys uh, too. I was a a student leader in the Darfur genocide activism community, and through it, I got to know I think the first Rwandan I knew well. she was a survivor. she's um high up in the in the government today, Stephanie Naombare. And I remember she said to me one day we were making lunch, and she said... You know, your family is where my family will be in two generations. And she meant it as a good thing. She meant it as hopeful. And I think about it all the time. It's devastating to me, this feeling of this sort of constant cycle of it's always coming, of these, these legacies of genocide never stop. It's this feeling of having, of the idea of never again having failed. That's the thing. The big thing that keeps me up. The little things that keep me up are always the mo- the money. You know, like where is the money going to come from? Um, but the thing that that makes me smile to me, our biggest win this year. You know, JC's with the kids every day. I'm not with the kids. I'm with the spreadsheets and and the the partnerships and in the New York office. But we solidified something this year that just felt monumental. We're starting a partnership with Tulane University to study our model, to figure out our data and write up our model so that other communities can come to us and have an academic solid model kit to use to build youth villages that are right for them, to to make those 10,000 youth villages you just described. And that to me, that's the hope. Because as much as these legacies of genocide just keep coming, as much as there is always another community suffering in this way, this means that there also will always be a way to help them and help their kids.
0: Thank you so much. It's uh, it's beautiful to think about how you can create something and what a beautiful legacy for Anne and for her family that you can create something and build something and it can uh, have these ripple effects where even even after you're gone, even after we're all gone, the ideas of tikkun alam, tikun halev, that those ideas will be so firmly rooted that there will be generations and generations of others who build these kinds of places again wherever it is needed in the world and sadly it will likely always be needed in the world in different different parts of the world and uh, and so i just want to salute you for your efforts one thing we can do to make life a little bit easier for shiri so she doesn't have to worry about those <laughs> spreadsheets is uh make a nice donation and uh, and tell others to do the same and one way we can support uh, jc and fabrice's work is to uh come and visit the village um on the website there's a way that you can uh make your contact uh if you are planning a trip to rwanda make sure that you find a way to be there but even if you can't come in person you can go to the website and you can check out the videos and just sure just say the website to everybody we'll also put it in the in the file but just so if they're listening they can go to it
2: sure it's www.asyv.org
0: thanks everybody thank you very thank much you. Well, that's our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thanks especially to Fabrice Milzenzi, Jean-Claude Nikuliki and Sherry Sandler for their time and for helping us understand their important work. Hey, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And share it with a friend. Maybe they'll enjoy Search for Meaning as well. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Gorsi, our editor, Raz Husseini. To Maestro David Cates for composing the theme music with me, and to Josh Goldberg for his vocal. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay hopeful.